Good morning, Midland Free. Good morning. My name is Pastor Jeremy. We're delighted to have you worshiping with us today. I think Gibbs already given you a uh, good sort of prep on where we've been, but I want to refresh your mind as we go along. Let's uh, continue to worship by praying together. Father, we thank you, uh, Lord, for your heart for us and for your love. And Lord, we pray that that would infuse us and empower us with love for you and love for others and even a love and a respect in a godly and healthy way for ourselves. Thank you, God, for the word you've given us, and may it impact us today in whatever situation we're in. In Jesus' name, amen. I guess I should have ended that prayer differently. Some churches say, and all God's people said, amen. There you go. Make sure you're nice and awake this morning. Um, where we've been, if, you have, if you're just joining us, we uh, welcome you here. You belong, and we're glad to see you. We'd love for you to plug in and engage and stay. But where we've been is this. We're doing in the fall a series entitled Engage. Um, usually I'm pretty much just an expository guy, but we felt the need to target some specific things uh, for our church's benefit. And these things are as, uh, the following. First of all, our, our, just our relationship with God. How do we engage with God? And secondly, our relationship with family. Uh, whatever family context we're in, whether we're single, married, children, adult, whatever, widow, divorced, here's a way for you to engage in your family. And third, uh, how do you engage in stewardship, uh, that big thing that we all uh, love not to talk about, and that's our finances. Um, number two, engage with family is where we're at today. Um, and you'll see in this series that this is particularly going to start with marriage and marriage, and then it'll go to parenting. And you'll think, uh, I'm not really in that circles maybe, but that's okay. I promise you, I absolutely promise you, regardless of what circle you're in, this has something for you. So this is really a bigger picture thing, and you'll see as we go along how that applies. Particularly today, as we talk about engaging with uh, family. So today begins with family, and particularly marriage. And what's interesting about it is this. I'd like to address the objection right away. Well, maybe I'm widowed. Maybe I'm divorced. Maybe I'm never, ever, ever going to even think about marriage again today. But actually, this does apply to you in the same way the second commandment does. In other words, the second commandment, the first commandment is to love God. Second commandment is to love people because if you love God, you love people because they're made in his image. Therefore, you love them too. In a similar way, what I'm going to try to convince you of today is if you love the gospel, then you love marriage. Regardless of whether or not you're married or not, you will honor, respect, cherish, and uphold the institution of marriage because you love the gospel, and loving one means loving the other. Just like loving God means loving people, loving the gospel means loving marriage. So I'll explain that as we go along, but it's uh, quite the mystery, really, and that's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. He starts like this. When he's talking about the gospel, he actually says, when I'm talking about marriage, I'm actually talking about the gospel. Ephesians 5.32 says it like this. It says, it refers to Christ and the church. So what is it? 
Well, it here refers to the marriage union. Throughout this passage, he's been referring to this metaphor or analogy to explain something to the people. And he says, actually, you're thinking marriage, but when I think about this, I'm not just thinking marriage. I'm thinking gospel, that is, Christ and the church. So it here is the marriage union. And he says, indeed, this is a profound mystery. In the same verse, he says, this is a profound, profound, profound mystery. And here it is. I'm going to ask you to put your thinking caps on this morning. I'm going to dive deep, and then we're going to pull out and apply. But this is the mystery which Paul says is profound. And I assure you, if Paul says it's profound, it's profound. Here it is, that the big picture... When I say the big picture, I mean the big picture, like eternity, like beyond time, space, the continual matter, before any and after any of these things. God's big picture for all eternity is actually revealed in the little tiny family unit of marriage. God's cosmic, prehistoric, eternal plan of redemption and glory for himself is encapsulated in this little itty-bitty tiny family unit we call husband and wife. So following Paul's lead then today, I want to explain that to you. Um, the breadth and scope of God's plan of redemption. And, I'm, and what I'm saying is I'm starting not at the 30,000-foot view, but like the infinity view. Like I'm pulling way way back and want to show you what this picture is for all of eternity. So we're going to do that from the book of Ephesians. Now here's something very important for you Bible scholars and students and people that read the word. A lot of times you think, what are the instructions for households? And you can probably say Ephesians chapter 5. This is where we go to get marriage and parenting and all this slave master stuff, which are referred to as household rules. But as you know, from that five on the very end, Ephesians does not start at chapter five. Ephesians starts at chapter one. It begins in chapters one through three with this great big picture. You read the beginning of the book, it's absolutely beautiful. It's the cosmic eternal scope of the plan of God. Then from that, it drills down. That's chapters one through three. Then it boils down into chapter 4 and says, okay, here's a picture of salvation. Here's the scope of soteriology. Here's the scope of salvation. Now, how does that apply to the church? Chapter 4. Chapter 4 is the church. Then he drills down even further and he says, okay, I've given you the big picture. Now I've moved into the medium-sized picture. Now we're moving down into the micro picture. How does this look in you and your marriage? How does this look with you and your children? How does this look with you and your employer? From big to general to ultra-specific, this is how the apostle is moving his letter to the people in Ephesus. So let me start then in chapter 1, because really I want you to see how this fits, the big picture, the beautiful context of the cosmic picture of God. In chapter 1, uh, I'll have slides up on the board. We'll eventually get to chapter 5. You're welcome to follow in your Bibles if you want. If you don't have one, we've got one in the back. But everything you see should be up on the screen. And you can download these too. If you want these notes later, just zip them to your phone and they're yours. So Ephesians chapter 1. Here's the big, huge 
cosmic, eternal, beyond time scope of God's plan. And I want you to listen carefully because I'm going to nail some words in there. And each one of those words that you hear in the big picture, you're going to hear come back in the small picture. Okay? Ephesians chapter 1 says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So just a general blessing to bless God because he's awesome. Now chapter 4, this is, or verse 4, this gets more specific. He says, even as he chose us in him, listen to this, before the foundation of the world, before he ever started anything, he chose us. Why? Why did he choose me? Because I'm, no, nothing because of me. There is no reason whatsoever on my behalf that he chose me. But instead, he chose me. Why? So that we, that's the collect of us, should be holy. This is why God chose you. This is why God redeemed you. This is why God saved you, for his glory, so that you would be holy. That's kind of the gospel. Why? So that we would be holy and blameless before him. That holy word will come back. Making known to us the mystery of his will. Now, just a small thing. Mystery, we think of as like some, I don't know, some like whodunit caper or something like that. Here, mystery just means that something that could not be understood unless God explained it to you. It's, it's not really a secret that he's trying to hold back. It's something that he wants you to understand, but there's no way you can grasp it until he explains it. That's what he means by mystery. You can't get this on your own. God has to explain it to you. So this mystery is his will. That's the mystery. What is God's will? Who knows his mind? Not me. I wish I did, but man. According to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan, you planners should love that part, as a plan for the fullness of time when everything comes together to unite all things in him. No more disharmony, but true shalom, peace. In heaven and on earth. That's everywhere. There's the big picture, the cosmic picture of how God will tie everything together to fit according to his purposes. Now what's cool here, what's really, really neat, is that in chapter 5, see that was chapter 1, the big picture. Chapter 5, Paul, in this beautiful mastery of artisanship, is going to tie a bow on it like you've never seen. He's going to take the beginning of time, creation, and sort of tie it to the end of time, restoration. He's going to take Adam and Eve over here in Genesis and tie them to Christ and the church in the New Testament. Adam and Eve are going to tie in directly to Jesus and the apostles. And the way they do that is through the bridge of marriage. So let's take a look at that then in uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 31 and 32. Listen to this beautiful artistry. Verse 31. Now pay attention, Bible believers. Listen to this verse. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
If you've never read the Bible before, we'd love for you to start reading it. And if you start reading it, this is one of the verses you'll come across almost right away. People who have, where is this? What is this a quote from? Genesis, right? Genesis chapter 2. It's right after God makes heavens and the earth and all that's in it. And then Adam and Eve. And he says, hey, this is why I made man and woman. You two are going to become one. This is the deal. So there's this beginnings for us. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and unite with his wife. Now, look what he says. Well, how does this happen? He just jumps like because thousands of years. Verse 32. This mystery is profound. Which mystery? The one I just told you about, Genesis chapter 2. That a man and woman become one. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it actually refers to not just to man and women, but what it actually refers to is Christ and the church. Oh, what in the world? <laughs> Blowing my mind here, Paul. Doesn't work. Yeah, it does. Let me show you. Now, this is going to get a little bit weird. Excuse my poor acting skills. It's the best I can do. By the way, Lee, you did a great job this morning. Just saying. I see you there. Thank you. Um, this is what I imagine going on in the mind of the Trinity. Earlier I said, who can know the mind of God? It's not me, but just for fun, this is called sanctified imagination. I'm just making this up. This is not scriptural. This is just me. But I think if you follow this, if you follow what I'm going to do here, it'll make it much more easy for me to explain sort of chronologically what Paul is saying here. So imagine this scene, if you will. Before the stars, the heavens, the universe, before anything exists, there is God. So there's no space, there's no time, there's no matter, there's no air, nothing that we know exists. And there's God, perfectly happy in and of himself. Who is that? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God, three persons. Perfect unity, perfect unity and perfect love. Everything is good. And there is God... And so now here's where I'm using a little bit of creative artistic license, okay? So what happens is this. I'm imagining God the Father, because he's the planner. He's, he's the one who runs the show. He says, okay, hey, guys, come on over. You know. So Father, Son, and Spirit sort of gather around. And he's like, you guys, guess what? And the son's like, what, Dad? What? What is it? You know how sons are, right? What, what, what? Today's the day. Today's the day. Yeah, today's the day we're going to create the world. Sweet. We've been looking forward to this for so long. This is going to be awesome. Say, hold on, hold on. Before we do, you remember the plan, right? What's the plan? Well, come on in. Let's talk about it. Make sure everyone's on the same page. Okay, okay. Son, what are you going to do? All right, let's see here, Dad. Last time we talked about this, you said, oh, yeah, we're going to make the world and the heavens and the stars, and you're going to name them all, and and." You're going to make this thing called earth, and then you're going to put people there. Ah, yeah, people. Oh, man. Well, they start off really good, and then there's that not-so-great part, and they mess it all up. But I'm going to become one of them. Yes, yes, that's right. So I'm going to go down, and I'm going to become one of them, and I'm going to reveal you, like, perfectly. Like, they'll kind of forget what you look like and all that you're about, even though you gave them the law, and they'll just dump it but i will show them who you are i'll do it yeah that's perfect mm. 
and then I'm going to die. Yeah, yeah. But you're going to raise me to life again. That's exactly right. I'm going to get you. I'm going to pull you out of that grave, and I'm going to raise you right back here where you were before time began, and you will be glorious all over again. Oh, it's going to be so awesome. Yeah, I can't wait. And then, yeah, at the right time, I'm sorry, son, you know everything, but I'm not going to tell you this one. <laughs> I'm going to send you back, and then you're going to fix everything. You're going to make the world new. You're going to conquer all your enemies and throw that little worm in the pit. Got it. And the Spirit's like, hey, wait, wait, wait. What about me? What's my job? What's my job? Don't worry. You've got a job too. Jesus created the world in him. All things hold together, and he was before it, and all things glow to him, but you're going to be all part of the process. So you're hovering over the face of the deep, and everything's coming together, and you're there everywhere all the time, so you're not missing out on anything. And then Jesus is like, when I come back up, I'll send you. And the Spirit's like, sweet, I'll go. As soon as you leave, I'll come. And we'll wait for you to come. And I'll hang out there with your people. And I'll keep them all together until when you come back. That way we don't lose any. I'll indwell them. I'll mark them. I'll seal them. I'll empower them. I'll convict them. I'll do everything you want me to do to make them just like you. Yes, that's it. And you stay there until I come back. And because you, Spirit, and I are one, then they will be one with me. Huh? So even though Jesus is gone, he's up in heaven, by virtue of the fact that the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, lives inside of us, we are actually with Jesus. Because the Spirit and Jesus are never separate. They're always together. They're always united. So because the Spirit's in us, now we are in Christ. You hear that all throughout the New Testament. You're in Christ. You're in Christ. Yeah, because the Spirit's in us. And the Spirit's in Christ. Therefore, the Spirit, even though Jesus is up here and we're down here, the Spirit has come into us and united us nearly physically with Christ. We are one with Him. And we pastors and Christian theologians call this the mystic union of the believer, that we are one with Christ, that we are united to him. So we are in him, Paul says. We're like one. It's weird. I know. We don't get it. But it's because the spirit has jumped inside of us. And once that spirit's there, we're inside of Christ. So Christ and his church are one. They are married. They are united he is our husband, we are his bride. Oh, and by the way, you know what that means? If you're a Christian, that means you're married. <laughs> you are. <laughs> you thought you were single. <laughs> you're not. You're married to Christ because we're his church. Everybody's married. There's just some people here that look a little more married than others. So, what I'm saying to you is that in the eternal cosmic plan of God, before he ever created male and female, he already knew about human beings who would sin. He already knew that he would send Jesus to earth. He already knew that Jesus would die and raise from the grave. He already knew that he would send the Holy Spirit. And he already knew that the Holy Spirit would unite us to Christ, making us one. In other words... He based the marriage union on the Christ church union. 
So if we were to go back to replay that conversation, I think this is what would happen. You'd have Father, Spirit, and Son come together after everything I just told you, and they go, all right, bring it in. Everybody got it? We're on the same page? Know what you're doing? Yes, sir. Okay. Put your hands in. One, two, three. Trinity. Boom. They go and do their thing. And then Father's like, oh, wait, 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 wait. Before you go, hold on. I want to show you something really cool. They're like, there's something more? Yeah, here's a mystery. Here's a surprise. Here's something I've got going that they're not going to figure out for a long time. But when they do, they'll say, oh, that, that was that. And he's like, yes, that was that. It's so cool. This is like the best engineering ever. <laughs> the plan was in place before the process. The plan precedes the process, the model before the thing itself. So God says, here, come here guys, let me show you something. You know how we're like one? We're united. We're all together. Yeah, yeah, that's us, Dad. The Trinity. Right. Well, I'm going to make them look just like us. In our image, plurality and unity, I'm going to create humanity. I'm going to create male and female both in the image of God such that when they come together as one, they perfectly mirror us. I'm going to create marriage based on the unity of Christ and his church, based on the Trinity. And so it's so cool because now when you see that plan, I hope you see that. Can you do this? Does that make sense? You know? Yeah? Uh, kind of? All right. Here's how it works in our thinking. In, let me, now let me do it if you'd prefer chron- chronological. You know, I like it stacked, Pastor Jeremy. Chrono- okay, here we go. In our terms of history, Adam and Eve, we say, would be created on day six. So, day six, Adam and Eve. Now, a long time later comes Jesus, 3 BC, and then his church, 30 AD. So, before Jesus and the church is Adam and Eve. Marriage exists before the church. Thus... The plan for the incarnation of Adam and Eve preceded, or the plan for the incarnation of Jesus preceded the creation of Adam and Eve. The plan for the institution of the church preceded the institution of marriage. God created marriage based on his pre planned purpose to unite Christ to the church. In other words, engineers unite. The plan preceded the process (laughs) for any of this stuff happened. Let me say it to you another way. The plan for the son to leave and cleave came before the plan for human sons to leave and cleave. The plan for Jesus to leave his father came before the plan for sons to leave their fathers. 
The spiritual union preceded the physical union. Thus, the plan preceded the process, the model, the institution. So, in other words, what am I saying to you? Ephesians 5.32, this mystery is absolutely profound. It is profound that God created marriage to be a reflection of his cosmic eternal plan of redemption of the gospel itself before he ever brought the gospel to be. God designed marriage. In other words, here's the theme for today that I've been trying to develop because I know this, that was the zoom out, but now here comes the zoom in. The mystery is profound that God, decide, God designed marriage to mirror the gospel. So in other words, this applies to everybody, married or not, because the purpose of the gospel and the purpose of marriage are exactly the same. Do you remember in chapter 1 where he said, here's the purpose of the gospel according to the mystery of his will made known to us before the foundations of the earth. Same thing for marriage. The purpose of the gospel and the purpose of marriage are the same. The process of the gospel is for the purpose of purification and presentation of the bride to the bridegroom, of the church to Christ. The gospel is is to bring glory to God by redeeming his fallen creation and making us holy so we can stand before him beautiful and white. The purpose of marriage is the exact same. It's not to take advantage of your wife so that she'll make your life better. It's to die on her behalf to make her holy in order to present her to Christ. It's the same. It's the exact same. Just like the gospel, marriage works like this. The plan precedes the process. Here's a structure of today's message. I'm doing it in reverse. The plan precedes the process, and the process is for the purpose of purification and presentation. So here comes the bow that I want to tie on top. Let me bring this together for you. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 through 11. Here it is on the screen, too. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Look, the cosmic plan. Do you not know that all the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? You kind of get that, right? Like, we do bad things, we feel bad about it, we can't be treated well. It makes sense. Justice won't work for us. We need mercy. And so it says, but such were some of you. Yeah, I admit it. I was one of those. But... Now listen to this. This will come back and this will sound all new to you in just a second. You were washed. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. There's a process of salvation. Justified, sanctified, washed, purified by the Spirit. Oh, there's that trinity of our God. I'll give you a little analogy here. This is fun. You ladies hopefully will like this, especially if you're thinking about marriage or uh, have a daughter that will be married someday. Now we do our own little thing. I don't even know how it works because I'm kept out of the circle and just wait for the big reveal. But I'm pretty sure behind the closed veil, there's something going on with mom and the bridesmaids and everyone, and they're like gussing each other up and feeling so, ooh, and I see little pictures later on. That's all I get. But I know there's something exciting going. Well, back in the day... I mean, back in the way day, 
like in the Old Testament thousands of years ago. They didn't have showers and spas and whatever. They just had a bath. And so it was actually kind of a big deal for people to get a bath. You know? Most of the time you go around stinky, and so unless you've been anointed with oil lately, and hopefully that overpowers your own smell. So you look at, for example, the book of Ruth, and Naomi, her mischievous mother-in-law who loves to play matchmaker, hey, Ruth, come over here. There's Boaz. Let's get you all gussied up and go down to him at night and be smelling good. Take a bath. Ruth, let me tell you, you've been gathering. Take a bath. <laughs> It'll help, I promise. Take a bath. Get clean. Smell good. And then go to him at night. See what happens. I think you'll like it. Ruth. Oh, what about Esther? Hey, same thing. These ladies got like 12 months of this royal treatment, whatever it was. Perfume and baths and oils. Says that there's spice and mirth. And after six months with oil and six months with spices, they're ready to go in. So in the Old Testament, there's this culture of preparing the bride, washing her, making her clean, sanctifying her, setting her apart, beautifying her, preparing her for her bridegroom. Beautiful picture. Ezekiel, one of the prophets, picks up this imagery. And, he's, and what he's doing is in chapter 16, I'm just going to tell you, don't even look there. He, he declares that at the time of Israel's birth, it was in a pitiable condition, that she was dirty, she was defunct, she was rejected, but God came and entered into a covenant with her. What is marriage, by the way? Covenant, we'll talk about that next week. But God enters into a covenant and bathed her with water, oh, this sounds familiar, anointed her with oil, ooh, that sounds beautiful, and clothed her with the finest materials, like this beautiful white wedding gown. She's prepared. That's what God does for his bridegroom. Then what happens is Jewish culture picks this image up. I know I've been going, listen, this is beautiful. And this is what the, on the day of the betrothal, the bridegroom will say to his father. He brings the bride who's gone through that process in. He's presenting her to the father because this is a, community thing. Dad, here's my wife. He says, behold, and he makes this pledge to her. Behold, you are consecrated to me. You are betrothed to me. Behold, you are a wife to me. Can you imagine Jesus saying that to you? You are washed. You are sanctified. You are anointed with oil. You are beautiful to him. And the purpose of salvation is same as the church. To cleanse her from all unrighteousness and present her to the Father. Now listen to Ephesians chapter 5. Understanding that cultural metaphor. This is the instruction of husbands to wives in the big picture. Christ loved, this is Ephesians 5, the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, <gasps> cleanse her, 
cleansing her by the washing of water with the word of God so that he might present the church to himself in splendor in all of her beauty without spot or wrinkle that she might be holy and without blemish. Behold, you are a wife to me. You are consecrated. You are betrothed. This is the purpose of marriage. And this is the purpose of God. It's one and the same. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Does that take on new meaning? Yeah, I think so. He sacrificed himself for her so that she could be presented beautiful to the Father. Your job is to sanctify your wife, even when she doesn't want it. There are times where Jesus has to deliver a hard word to his church, and there's times where you're going to have to deliver a hard word to your wife. And you have to be willing to make her mad in order to make Jesus happy. You might have to take a risk and potentially even hurt her feelings in order for her good. That's a little bit different, right? Because your purpose is to sanctify. It's not just to spoil. Your purpose is not to spoil your wife. It's to sanctify her. Yeah. So then, church, the process of the gospel and the process of marriage are exactly the same thing. Just like Jesus functions for the church, so too are men to function in their marriage. In other words, I'm going to skip all the way to 526 through 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? Look at it. It's underlined. In order that he might sanctify her. In other words, just like Ephesians 1, 4 says, He chose us in Him before the foundations of the world. Why? This is Ephesians 1.4, if you can go back a slide or two. That we should be holy and blameless before Him. So why are you married? For holiness. This is where Gary Chapman and I would agree. (laughs) Sacred marriage. What's the purpose? To be holy. The movies tell you it's this magical moment where everything's wonderful. It doesn't work out, and all of a sudden, you're gone. Why? Because it doesn't like the movies. <laughs> of course not. Jesus didn't write the movie. <laughs> Jesus wrote this script, and it's a little bit different. It starts with God's eternal cosmic plan, and it ends in the presentation of the pure and spotless bride. But in between there, there's a lot of rub, and there's a lot of difficulty, just like your marriage. It starts with this beautiful thing, but then there's a lot of stuff in between. But the point is not for the, but the point is for the presentation of the pure and spotless bride. That's your responsibility, husband. Love your wife as Christ loved the church. Present her to the Father. Beautiful. And by beautiful, we don't mean physical, we mean spiritual. So you know what that means, guys? Here's your straight-up talk from Pastor Jeremy. These are what I got. If you have something better, go with it. This is from me. This is what that means. Pray with her. Pray with her at night. 
doesn't have to be long. Just before you go to sleep, pray every night. Every night. I don't care what or how you feel. Pray. Hold her hand on a walk. Let everybody else know she's yours. Listen to her as, your, as if your very life depended upon it. Not the uh-huh, not, I'm in the game. The real thing. Like, this is worth a million dollars if I catch the end of this sentence. Make the bed. Cancel the meeting. Come home early. Schedule the date. Decline the opportunity. Say no to the obligation. Be pressured by others. Misunderstood by your employers. Delinquent on your friends. Lighten your emails. Last to mow the lawn. And first to love your wife. Husbands, love her. Here is my charge. Love her as Christ loved the church. Giving up all that he had. His baseball games, his football cards, his golf clubs. Oh, his life. For the purpose of her sanctification. Presenting her to the Father as a pure and spotless bride. Behold, you are consecrated to me. You are betrothed, O church. You are a wife. This is the call for husbands. It's not small. It's not just your little home. The big picture. The grand, the cosmic, eternal scope of the plan of God. You're part of something much bigger than your little thing. You're married to Christ's church. Your bride, his bride, the gospel, marriage, same thing. From before it ever started. This mystery is profound. Now ladies, you don't get off the hook either. I've been harping on the guys for a little bit. But the reality is, that's kind of the way it works. In this text, you'll see more space devoted to the men than the women. It Actually, the structure is, starts with women, less space. Goes to men, more space. Starts with children, less space. Goes to parents, more space. Starts with slaves, less space. Goes to masters, more space. That's the structure. So where do you think the weight of responsibility lies? So, here to women, though, I'm not one, obviously, but I have these, so it's not from me, it's from the Lord. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands. Submit. For the husband's the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. You never heard the church saying, Jesus, we'll do what we want, thanks. Or maybe you have. But you shouldn't. It's his body and he himself is the savior. That means he owns it, he provides for it, he protects it, and that's what husbands do for wives. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit in everything to their husbands. Whew, he keeps saying that submit thing. I'm not so sure about that. <laughs> right? That's not real popular in our culture today. Maybe I'm just a patriarchal, you know, one of those, all those bad words that people want to call me. Just want to own the world. Maybe this is culturally specific, right? It's just back then, not now, we know better. C.S. Lewis calls that chronological snobbery. <laughs> that we, by our own cultural definitions, should judge the culture of another and say we're better. What well, makes us better? We're more intelligent, we're better looking, what? That's just arrogance. 
This actually applies universally for several reasons. One is um, that the Trinity is eternal. So before there was culture, the Trinity existed. And within that perfect union that we talked about earlier, there's differing roles, differing functions. Father says, hey, son, go. And the son says, okay. Does that make Jesus any less worthy of worship? Absolutely not. He's king of all the universe. Everything was made through him. He can destroy anything he wants to, and everything gets put under his footstool. Why? So he can hand it back to the Father and say glory to God. Spirit, is he any less? No. But they function differently. So too a marriage, so too a man and a woman. There is ontological difference, or ontological unity, but functional difference. They're the same in essence. They differ in their jobs. It's pre-culture. It's also creative order. In other words, in the garden, in the perfect state, Adam names Eve. So just like he named everything else, he is showing himself the leader. So you see that this transcends and comes before any of the arguments that are used against it. (laughs) All the arguments that say this shouldn't be are actually preempted by what was. Moreover, even in this culture, these codes were liberating In this culture, what he was saying here was crazy. The women didn't even get to hang out with the men. They're in their own separate place, and the only time they come is when the men summon. The men can go out and play around all they want and then come back to nothing. But the women had to basically be slaves. In this, it's totally liberating, and they don't know how to behave. And so the Apostle Paul is saying, even though there's no more Greek nor slave nor Jew, you still have a role in your relationship that you have to fulfill. And this is what it looks like. Because these women were just blown away by the fact that they were released by Christ from their cultural codes. So he says, okay, here's how this works. So what about abuse? I just said submit. What about um, hmm, bad situations? Well, there are several biblical examples, Acts 5.29 being one of them, where the apostles say, hey, we have to submit to God rather than man. You know, if your husband tells you to rob a bank, You don't do it, right? It's wrong. It's clearly against God's will. If your husband is beating you, that's wrong. It's against God's will. If you're still staying in that situation, that means you yourself are making it possible for your husband to sin. You need to remove yourself so he can't. In other words, the Bible does not condone abuse. It gives examples of women like the Hebrew midwives who disobeyed their superiors because they were obeying God and not man. It gives examples of Daniel. So the Bible is not foolish. It knows that human beings do bad things. And it doesn't say, become the victim. It says, as unto the Lord. So in other words, when you submit to your husband, you're just saying, I'm actually obeying, I am doing worship right now. When I submit, I am worshiping God. But if that call for me to do something does something that's contrary to God, then it's no longer worship. And instead, to worship, I have to say no. So the question is, what makes you worship? If it's according to the Lord's will, yes, sir. If it's not, um, no. That's what it means. So, going back to the very beginning, this is the sum, well, let me give wives a charge then too. Wives, as a service to God, love, respect, and follow your husband 
to such an extent that others will be blown away by how far you go to make his life good. And now to the non-married. Guys, just because you're not married doesn't mean you get off. Here's the charge to you. As servants of the high king, committed to the furtherance of his kingdom, glory, and gospel, do all that you can to preserve, protect, and support and encourage the institution of marriage as a way of furthering the gospel. So kids, this means obey your parents. College students, call your mom. Single, contribute your time, serve in nursery, give mom a break, do something (laughs) to help the marriage. Do something. Why? Because it's not marriage, it's the gospel. The big picture. So going back to the very beginning, here's the beauty of this. I'm a husband and I'm up here saying all this stuff about marriage, but I go home to a home that I mess mess up in too. You know, funny thing is my in-laws are here today and I'm preaching on marriage in front of mother and father-in-law. Wow, (laughs) the irony of the Lord's timing. Thank you, God. They've heard all they need to know. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, boy. Husbands fail, don't we? Are any of us Christ? But our job is to be Christ. How can I do that? In Christ? So Adam failed. You know what Adam was? Well, he was the human who ate the apple. He sinned. He was the husband who blew it on his wife. Big time. Instead of preserving her, he tarnished her. Instead of protecting her from the serpent, he opened the door and let it in. Adam failed worse than any other husband ever. It wasn't long before his own kids were killing each other. I'm in Adam, or am I? Because, yeah, I'm a man, I'm a human, I'm a husband, just like Adam. But I think, actually, the gospel tells me I'm no longer in Adam, but I am in Christ. I'm so thankful for the second Adam. It is dependent on me. I'm no different than the first. I blow it all the time. I open the door and let sin right in. That's not the purpose of a husband. His job is to sanctify her. But I am in Christ. I am in Him. Thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. For Ephesians chapter 1 tells us in him, not in Adam, but in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the marvelous riches of his grace which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us what? The mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ is a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in heaven and on earth in him in Christ we have obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to the purpose of him who doesn't let me blow it but instead works all things according to the counsel of his will so that we who are first to hope in Christ might end up exactly where he wants us to be the praise of his glory and grace.
Yeah, I'm a husband. Yeah, I'm a man. Yeah, I blow it. I know my calling. But I know my victory. I know my heart is secure in his, in him and him alone. Purpose of marriage, purpose of the gospel, it's the same. Present her holy and blameless unto the Father. Father, we thank you and praise you. Lord, I, I confess and I admit that many times I fail. I'm thinking about presenting my wife to me. I want her to serve me and my purpose. I think it's good when she does. I pray, Lord, that you'd radically change my mind, that my purpose for my wife is not for me, but for you. That you would change our minds. The purpose of our home is not for us, but for you. The purpose of our kids is not for us, but for you. Nothing is ours. It's all yours. And so, Lord, according to your grace, which you lavished upon us, may the mystery of your will be known, that everything that is to come and everything that was before is all based on you. Lord, may it tie together in our lives to such an extent that everything we do is for your honor and glory and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.